0: And take advantage of limited walk in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Brian Washington, whose debut novel, Memorial, has just been published. Brian, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me. So this is your first novel, but this is not the beginning of the of the writing path for you. You've been blazing something of a path of glory as a, as a short story writer. And tell us a little bit about your career up to this point and why it was you felt that this was the time to try your hand at writing a novel.
1: Yeah, Lot was my first book. It was a series of interconnected short stories and after I finished Lot I was in the midst of writing what I thought would be the second project and in that sort of liminal period I wrote a short story iteration of Memorial and it was less than 3,000 words like it was really just sort of like an in and out thing but the characters stayed with me and the sort of thematic concerns that they had stayed with me and I think a part of that staying with me was that they didn't Seem as if though there were tidy conclusions or tidy resolutions within them. And that's always just really interesting to me playing with like questions or playing with tangents that don't seem as if though there's a way to like put a bow on them at the end. And I was convinced by my friends and also um, eventually my agent and then also eventually my editor that this was in fact a series of structural thematic concerns that you know, it would be worth interrogating, it would be worth playing with. And that's when I started writing uh, Memorial in earnest and really taking it seriously on a draft and an edit level.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, other than the obvious matter of length that, you know, a novel is a lot longer than a short story, what do you see from the, from the writer's perspective? What do you see as the sort of essential differences between writing a novel and writing a short story?
1: I can only speak for myself on that front, but in a lot of ways, the structure itself was not terribly dissimilar because, like, I'm someone who really only processes narrative at the time being, at least in smaller, sort of excerpty, like, bit ish moments. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't a wild departure from what I'd been doing with Lot or the short stories that I'd been writing and sort of playing with in the interim between last publication and Memorial's publication or the time that I spent working on Memorial. But one foundational difference in a lot of ways was ensuring that the characters and the concerns that they had and the sort of the mag entanglements that they found themselves navigating would be ones that like I would just be interested in for the time that it would take to complete the novel because all in all, it took about three years and 11 drafts. And okay. if I'd lost interest, then I would have stopped writing it and no one would have cared, you know, because that book wasn't on contract. So trying to find things that, you know, can sort of carry enough of your interest and your engagement and your involvement as you have any number of different things that are happening over the course of three years to want to return to whatever those things are, was a pretty pivotal difference. Because a short story, like I, you can finish, I can finish a short story in you know, a weekend, like like three day, four day, I a long weekend, I can finish a short story edits might be endless, like edits right. might take, you know, <laughs> like six months, seven months, eight months, like a year and a half, but like actually starting and finishing it, like, sure. Whereas with Memorial, it took quite a while to really have a sense of where the draft was for a major arc level, Yeah. yeah. but and also like a micro arc level, it just took a minute.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true what you say about, you have to have characters that you are willing to spend time with. Um, that's that's certainly been the case for me. So tell us a little bit about about your novel. Tell us about Memorial.
1: Yeah, so Memorial is a love story between two queer young men living in Houston, Benson and Mike and the novel's issue, so to speak, is largely them just trying to figure out what it means to be okay, just as a person yeah. and also okay as a person among people and Mitsuko, uh, Mike's mother uh, helps them along in various
0: ways. Yeah, yeah. so you, we start out this novel, we're in the first person, we're in the present tense. We, we have lots of dialogue without quotation marks. I felt like I was in a Raymond Carver story and and I mean that <laughs> as a compliment, um, but what did you want to accomplish narratively with those, with those choices at, at the beginning, putting us in that kind of um, situation as readers?
1: Yeah, so the lack of quotation marks is, something that's usually I'll try to do if I can get away with it depending on the publication <laughs> of the venue or because I think that there's a switch that I myself as a reader make when I'm reading a narrative that does utilize quotation marks with dialogue where like sure. I'll be reading the sort of expository information or lush description of setting or you know some sort of like background info or like some interior thought that a character's having and then like I'll see dialogue and I will shift to like okay like now I'm reading like dialogue I was out in the world and now I'm in a one-to-one basis. And that shift is deft and the hands of people who can utilize it, but I do not think I'm one of those people. So I'm really interested in ha- not having that shift, right? Like having yeah, the narrative yeah. just be mm-hmm. the narrative, particularly when it's from, you know, the first person, but also as far as just the way that the language works on the page, there's a reading of Memorial where Benson ultimately is seeking to become someone who can speak up for himself. And Mike is ultimately in a lot of ways seeking to become someone who can listen and is receptive to not only what the folks around him want or need, but what perhaps they want or need that they're not able to express. So in the initial opening of the book, Vincent's sections and a lot of his dialogue is short. It's quippy, like some chapters are, you know, like a line, some are like a line or two, some are a handful of graphs. And yet, as his narrative progresses, they get significantly longer. Yeah. And he speaks more on the page, and we spend more time with him in linear time, interacting with the folks around him, I suppose. So, his sort of interior thoughts that he's not expressing. Whereas for Mike, from the very beginning, of his section. It's just these long, sort of languorous, like yeah. comma and semicolon filled, <laughs> you know, diatribes from him, just sort of, like talking and talking and talking and talking. And as his narrative progresses, we get a lot less of that. And his sections become shorter and he spends less time talking. And by the end of the novel or near the end of the novel, there are moments when the characters around him and the people around him will expect him to say something because that's just how they view him in the context in which they viewed him, but he has been changed by the events of the novel. So he doesn't say anything or he'll listen or he'll ask a question. So really trying to find a way to put those
0: arcs on the page in a way that made thematic sense, but also could be seen yeah. structurally and visually on the page was important point yeah. and I think that's a really good example. What You just explained of how structure can reveal character, you know, that, that as writers, we're thinking more about more than I mean, we're thinking about telling a story, but we're also thinking about how does the the structure of the book that we're putting together contribute both to the story and to the characters. We find out early on in this book that that race is going to play, um, you know, a significant role in the relationship between between these two men. Can you talk a little bit about why you, you gave them the particular ethnic backgrounds that you did, uh, what you hope to accomplish with that?
1: Yeah I think that in a lot of ways when I started Project I'm reaching toward the book that I want to read in yeah, a yeah. lot of ways like that is like the primary sort of objective in a lot of ways like what is the sort of story that I want to read and also what is the sort of story that my friends might enjoy like what might make them laugh or make them think or make them take like a second and I hadn't seen a narrative featuring characters from the communities that Ben and Mike are from. And I certainly hadn't seen a love story and I certainly hadn't seen a queer love story. And in the midst of writing Memorial, something that I kept running up against is that it was very difficult to find direct comps for the book and direct comps for yeah. the yeah. narrative. Like it wasn't really a question of they not coalescent with what I was trying to do or me not being amenable to them. Like that just weren't there yeah right like a story featuring queer folks or marginalized communities of the states that didn't solely capitalize like, on their trauma or that didn't necessarily have an explicitly antagonistic force whether it was like an infrastructural force or whether it was like, a particular person or like a family member or whatever so that was at the forefront of my choosing the characters that I did but also I'm really sort of taken by the ways in which communities that perhaps might be immediately seen as not having much in common with one another or not having a connection in fact do because it's very faint and it's implicit in how they are able to come together with one another I think maybe that's partly the way I'm like so fascinated with Houston because it's like such a diverse city and you got so many different folks coming from a litany of ethnic communities, a litany of religious communities, a litany of financial stratum, and yet we're able to figure it out, you know, and not only exist within their respective identities, but to create a sort of singular cohesive identity. So trying to sort of play with like that question of like why that is because it doesn't have like a clearly definable answer. Like I'm sure, you know, you could lay out the context and you can lay out the history of why communities are in a specific place and their relations and relationships with the communities that are surrounding them. But on an emotional level, on a thematic level, that's not really something that you can put really clean reins on. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting to me to take a character like Mike, who is this queer Japanese-American cis guy who has found a home in the third ward, which is one of you know the States' oldest historically black communities and think of himself as being taken in by the neighborhood and mm-hmm. being in fact taken in by the neighborhood and thinking of it as home. And it's interesting to me that someone like Ben who is, you know, this queer Black cis dude is able to find the closest iteration of family that he's been privy to. And, you know, Mike's mom who is this older Japanese woman, right? Like those connections that folks make when they're coming from other places are always really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I find that relationship just fascinating. And one of the things I love about, about novels in general is that they often will give us a window into what on the surface of it might seem an unlikely relationship and certainly I think the relationship between Ben uh, and Mike's mom is fairly unlikely and yet here they are sharing a living space and Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know maybe at the beginning maybe communicating maybe not I mean they're certainly not communicating in a, in a traditional let's sit down and have a conversation kind of way um, but it becomes a it becomes a fascinating relationship tell us a little bit about the about the different worlds that they come from and the, and the sort of the baggage they each bring to that relationship.
1: Yeah, Uh, Benson is a black aftercare teacher, and he comes from a family that is a little bit religious but also kind of not, and a family unit that has very clear identities and a fairly clear conception of how they view themselves. Even if his conception of self doesn't align with that. And also he's positive, he's HIV positive. So that is a part of him that his family has not taken to in the most amenable way. Whereas Mitsuko is a Japanese woman born and lived in Japan, moved to Houston for a time to be with her then husband, Aju, who's Mike's father, and then left Houston eventually after just like not having a really great go of it, just like having a really rough time in the States. And prior to and after leaving Houston, made a life for herself in a lot of ways and was deeply strategic about the decisions that she made makes and is deeply thoughtful about the decision that she made and makes and in a lot of ways she's the novel's moral center so yeah. really playing with how those two characters could come together was interesting to me and especially from my standpoint because I wanted to approach a novel in a way that every character had the capacity to come together or every character had the capacity to strive toward love or love toward the characters around them. And I didn't want the question to be if they'd be able to do that, although it is certainly a question that, you know, runs through the narrative for us of the text, like sort of from the readers or the audience's standpoint. But the question for me, um, as I was writing, I'm just like, okay, like how? will they do that? And what will it look like if perhaps the signals that they're sending out aren't being received in the way that they're intended, right? Like what yeah. happens when there's sort of friction between what's said and then what's intended and also like what's understood between each of this characters and sort of playing with that Venn diagram, not only for uh, Ben Amitsko but also for all the other characters in their respective revolutions. is really important to me.
0: Ben makes this comment early on. They're they're at a bar on Halloween, and people are all dressed up, and he says, I'd gone as myself. And that just seems to me to be a really loaded comment. Maybe it's because I just published a novel that's largely about identity. But first of all, what do you think that comment tells us about Benson, and and to what extent are you sort of exploring the the ideas of of identity in this novel? That's such an interesting question. I think
1: That particular comment from him was in a lot of ways like a portrait of how he saw himself Mm -hmm. within the context of the city and within the context of his relationship as being sort of divorced from the immediate proceedings at hand and whatever the emotional connotations were, right? Like, you have like a Halloween party and, you know, the other folks who are passing through it, they're going as identities that aren't their own, sort of playing into the motif of like, we're gonna dress up and we're just not going to be ourselves and we're going to make light of that and we're going to have a time of it. Whereas he didn't want any part of it, partly because perhaps he didn't buy into it and partly because he thought that he himself was so divorced from that particular context and it was a costume in its own way in a lot of yeah. ways and that question of context was really important to me as I was playing with how each character saw themselves within their respective context in relation to how they felt that they were meant to be seen or how others saw them in relation to the iteration of themselves that they wanted to be and you know, it's really playing with the question of like, what happens when those things don't align? And also what happens when something changes in the character's environment or something changes in interaction interaction that they, in interaction that they've had so that they're pushed toward one or the other uh, in a way that they
0: hadn't been before. You have, you've got a lot of cultures operating side by side in this novel. I mean, Mike, Mike is Japanese American, but he cooks at a, a Mexican restaurant. They have, you know, they're Hispanic people, uh, it, largely in the neighborhood. It's a, as you said, it's a historically black neighborhood. He's got a black boyfriend. Um, to me, I mean, that just is so emblematic of, of our country and, and the, both the richness and the challenges that come with having a, a wide variety of, of cultures mixing together. What do you think are the best ways to, to bridge understanding between uh, between different cultures that are living side by side?
1: That's a really good question. And I think I wrote Memorial and I certainly wrote a lot because there's not like a clean answer mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. you know, and having the chance to spend time with that question in various contexts and various narratives and various capacities was and is sort of my way of interrogating it, you know, because there's not really one way to predict or to intuit how several folks are going to come together when we're coming, when, you know, we or they are coming from wildly different backgrounds, you know, but it can't happen. So what, resides within that can is in a large part the sort of narrative thrust of Memorial, you know? Like how are they going to make it work? And sometimes they do it through dialogue, through conversations that they're having sometimes, they can't do it through dialogue. So it occurs through meals, like through the sharing of meals, through the cooking and giving comfort and pleasure to one another, whether they're texting each other, whether they're sending pictures, whether it's sex, whether it's just time spent in the same physical space and that being a mode of like comfort and pleasure in and of itself. So really trying to figure out what each character needs is sort of like on a personal level and identify, I think on my end, like as the writer and the person trying to tell the story, whether the characters around them can in fact give them that thing that the character needs or think that they need. And if they can't give them that thing in the exact iteration or the exact way um, that they need it, then that is like, there's inherently conflict in that. Yeah. And it's a negotiation. And then those characters have to decide um, how they're going to go forward. Like they're going to make concessions to and with one another, if they're going to accept whatever iteration of comfort and pleasure
0: that they do have on hand, or if they're going to cast, uh, you know, the whole thing away. Yeah, I love that you mentioned meals because this is a novel that's got a lot of food in it. I mean, you're going to be hungry to while you're this reading one. this novel. I'll Just <laughs> warn you. Uh, and and it struck me too that you know, as I as I look back on my own life and my generation, I think you know, a lot of us our first introduction to a particular different culture often came through food, you know, um, but could you can you talk a little bit about the role of, of food um, in the novel and, and, and why you wanted it to be so so central?
1: Yeah, I think that in a
0: novel that's like so
1: characterized by the silences that are shared between characters to the different ways in which characters go about trying to fill those silences, the question for me became how do, I find ways for these characters to connect with one another that are you know, solely through dialogue if there's mistranslation between them, whether it's literal mistranslation or sort of figurative mistranslation. And the act of providing comfort for the folks around them through food and providing pleasure to the characters around them through food became a recurring motif that seemed Like it made an emotional sense, but also one that made like a really sound structural sense on my end, um, because it solved a lot of narrative problems. I mean, there's there's like an author named uh, John Birdsall who I still admire, um, and he (laughs) said that he read a really early copy of Memorial, and he said that in a lot of ways it was like sneakily a book about two young men who fall in love with Japanese food and (laughs) that was like such a thoughtful read, but also it's like a deeply implicit read, which I wouldn't really expect or in a lot of cases even want someone to sort of like pull out from it. Like they notice it yeah. fine. But when in the midst of like drafting it, like I was, uh, I had arcs for each of the characters uh, that existed solely to define out what they were cooking and when they were cooking it, right? Because everyone had to have a reason for what they were doing and when they were doing it and what they learned from it or didn't learn from it. And for Benson, It was a very specific arc because he's someone who, at the beginning of the book, is sort of mystified by the fact of scrambled eggs. And by the end of it, he's someone, you know, he's a cooking in tandem with his partner. Whereas for Mike, there was a bit more flexibility because his culinary education is a bit more grounded than Vince's. And the question became what does this person who can cook these different things, cook for the folks around him when he wants to provide them comfort and give them pleasure. Right, like how does he make that sort of emotional jump? Whereas for Mitsuko, she is the one character in the novel in a lot of ways who is constantly providing comfort to the folks around her and is constantly trying to create an even keel through food because, like, very from the very outset, like she lands in the city that she had not so great go of the last time that she was around to see her son but her son is taking off to go see his estranged father and also she's staying with his son's maybe boyfriend that she's never met and she didn't know that any of that was going to happen and the first thing that she does the following morning is cook a meal both for herself and also for him and to create some sense of comfort and some sense of familiarity between the two of them and there's certainly friction between the two of them that you know grows and expands and contracts over the course of the novel but that reaching towards the equally brave like okay like at the end of the day like I'm we're going to share a meal and like if you're cooking for someone if you're feeding them then you can't disdain them too too much you know uh trying to play with that idea of creating a home through like a shared meal among so many different characters that were looking for what home it was for them or what iteration of home was for them was really important.
0: Yeah, yeah. You write um, whole swaths of Houston looked like chunks of other cultures, and of course that reminds me of how you know what a major uh, entry point for European immigrants Galveston was in the 19th century. But but why was Houston the right city for you to set this story in? Mm. From a structural standpoint,
1: the city's diversity is all-encompassing. So this was a story that could exist in Houston. Um, if, you know, I saw Mike, Japanese-American guy living in the Third Ward, one of the country's oldest historically Black yeah. neighborhoods. Yeah. And, you know, if I just saw him, like, out in the world, like, I wouldn't think twice about it. Like, it would just because it would just make sense, right? Yeah. Um, but it is objectively (laughs) interesting still, right? Like that he is able to make a home there and to be accepted there and to think of himself as a product of the neighborhood and to think of himself as a part of how it runs. And for them, you know, the residents that think of that as well. Um, So, you know, just from a logical plotting standpoint, like Houston would have made sense. Um, But I think that there's a warmth and a generosity that I've experienced and been really privileged to have and been really privileged to be privy to in Houston that I'm constantly looking for ways to put on the page because it's just so interesting to me because it feels like such a singular part of an experience of the city and wanting to see what, sort of tangible form that can take on the page is a challenge, but it's the thing that I want to read in
0: a lot of ways. Yeah. The fathers, it seems to me, uh, sort of hang over this narrative in a lot of different ways. And in, and in many cases, off stage. We have, we have some that come on stage, but we, have, but we hear a lot about fathers who, who aren't necessarily, you know, there in the, in the scene. Uh, I was especially struck, for instance, when uh, Mitsuko says, you're all like your fathers. Can you talk a little bit about why, first of all, what she means by you're all like your fathers and, and, and why the fathers are not completely absent, but sort of somewhat above and outside the narrative? Yeah,
1: I think that there's a way in which Ben and Mike view themselves as being removed from their family's narrative and removed from their respective fathers' narratives that characterizes the context in which they view themselves and how they view themselves. And in a lot of ways, Nitsuko's comment that, you know, you're all like your fathers is partly a nod to the fact that it's just like hard to find a good dude in general. Like most men just kind of suck. And partly because they are in fact, you know, a part of that narrative, right? Like it may be a very different iteration of the narrative, right? Like the one that they're carrying through than their families, but that doesn't make them divorced or separated from one another, you know? It's just changed. And what I wanted to be, I suppose, careful of avoiding was having Asia who's, Mike's father and also Benson's father be foils of one another and strictly foils of one another um, because I just felt like it would have been reductive and not very interesting. But I also wanted to be careful to avoid the sort of binary relationship that can sort of calcify itself in narratives where you have queer characters sort of negotiating their relationships with their families where the parents will either be like just the most supportive family that there ever was and like it would never occur to them to say a thing to their child about their identity and they're just like here and they're like present and all the way or you'll have the opposite iteration where yeah, yeah. the parents are like a Sith Lord variant when it comes to their child's queerness and they're just not here for it in any capacity and think of it as being the most reprehensible thing. when. You know, in fact, like the overwhelming majority of the time, the reality is somewhere in the middle, sure. right? And if I wanted to put a portrait that's like a similar kind reality on the page and it's lived for these characters, trying to find the creases in between those binaries and trying to have a narrative that takes place not only between, but in a lot of ways, uh, hopefully outside of those binaries, was really important to me. So to have, you know, Ben be at a diner with his father, and his father says deeply insensitive things, yeah. And for Ben to hear those and hear what's being said, but also know what the intent is behind them—that it's perhaps not as vile as the words themselves and intuit that and have to react to that and have to decide like, okay, am I going to cast this person out from my life? Or am I going to make concessions myself in order to have a relationship here? Or when Mike who befriends some older black neighbors of his and is cooking things for them and they're cooking things for him and they invite him over to have dinner and they introduce him to their daughter and their daughter tells him in, you know, the clearest sense that my parents are in fact, deeply homophobic. <laughs> and, you know, you are very much a queer person. So how is that going to alter your relationship with them? Like, are you still going to choose to spend time here? And for Mike to think of himself as someone who would say, absolutely not, like I'm, I'm over it. Like now that I know this, like I'm out and then have to make that decision and then, you know, falter a bit and have to make a negotiation on on his own. So trying to figure out what those negotiations and what those concessions look like respectively for each of the characters is important to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a, a heartbreaking moment again on the sort of subject of, of parenting. Uh, when Ben says, I can count the number of times my parents touched each other in front of me. Uh, how, do you, how do you see the relationships between the parents in the novel as shaping the ability of the next generation to form their own hopefully healthy relationships.
1: I wonder, that's a really good question. I think that a part of the reason that just putting those observations on the page was helpful from like a structural standpoint and also an emotional standpoint is that the reader and the audience can see where both Benson and Mike are coming from. Right. So, the reader sees that, okay, this was how Ben viewed his parents and this is what he saw of his parents. And this is how he's internalized it from his vantage point. And then from Mike's vantage point, we see the ways in which Ben behaves and the ways in which he operates that Ben himself can't see because he's not Mike and he really can't see how his actions are being. Into it in the ways in which they're being felt. And you have the sort of mirror of, of that, and that Ben is able to hear about Mike's parents whenever he is privy to hearing about them, because Mike really isn't terribly forthcoming yeah. about his relationship with his parents. And then to see Mike in tandem with his mother in real time. And then to spend an extended period of time with Mike's mother himself, and to have to negotiate how each of them behave and how each of them react within those various contexts, which you know, sort of saying it out and like trying to describe it, it sounds like a lot, but it's something that we all do every day, you know, like the context in which we find ourselves behaving in like a professional setting is or can be or probably should be in a lot of ways very different from the context in which we find ourselves reacting and behaving in you know tandem with our friends which is which is or can be different from the context of family or with significant others and strangers and so on so really playing with the context that the children find themselves stemming from and how they intuit those, and how they see those, and how
0: they themselves are acting and reacting in relation to those was really important to anyway. me. Yeah. We, we've been talking a lot about the major characters in the novel, and there, there are more minor characters too, um, you know, Mike's uh, co workers. Um, but then there's also characters who aren't even quite characters. There's, this, there's these brief encounters that to me are sort of emblematic of life in a city. Um, you know, they, they see a couple walk walking a dog, Ben sees a man under a bridge and they kind of like almost have a moment of eye contact. And then he says, we turned back to our lives. What do what those kind of encounters mean to you? First of all, in the context of the novel and, and also just for yourself in the context of, of living in a city. I think that
1: it was really important to me to have Houston and Osaka be singular entities as characters within mm-hmm. the narrative itself. And one way that made a sort of like logical and structural sense to do that was to have these sort of snippets and have these sort of half of the half, half of the anecdotes littered throughout the narrative. Because in a lot of ways it is those sort of quippy observations and those tiny things that are noticed or aren't noticed or yeah. are sort of intuited and felt and then never thought about, again, that so inform someone's relationship with a city. They certainly yeah. inform my relationship with Houston and the time that I've gotten to spend in Osaka, right? To where I won't perhaps spend a terribly long time thinking about like the point of my being in a particular place right like so much as like some tiny observation that i made or the way like a certain like street light looked or like an interaction that i wasn't a part of that i saw like two streets down the road like through the corner of my eye and sort of you know sort of like dwelling on those moments and i think that they so clearly in just like life paint and characterize like our experiences in these physical spaces and in a lot of ways, those are what give the physical space a sort of emotional weight and a sort of character, right? In the same way that if we were to take like a more, I don't know, firmly entrenched city in the American literary uh, fiction canon like New York, For example, like New York is like New York, like the geographic point, but like also New York is the stories and the sort of connotations and associations that we make with New York. And I don't know that that it's a terribly different or different at all with any city, like how we relate to them and the connotations that we associate with them and the stories that we associate with them.
0: Um, So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit because I I hate to ask people for lists, but it seems to me as as a... white reader that one of the positive things for me that's come out of the Black Lives movement is I have seen lists of books that are recommended for, for readers and for writers as well that will help us who were not part of the Black experience to understand aspects of that experience. I would love to see the same kind of list coming to help people understand the queer experience. Do you have do you have particular books that you would recommend in the, in that context uh, for, for people to read? Mm, I do. I'm always
1: weary of a sort of anti racist reading list and its offshoots. Well, yeah. As yes. an idea that, <laughs> you know, if you read these, like you will you'll be an anti racist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a bit, it's uh, kind of makes me want to, you know, run directly into a concrete wall. But as far as queer narratives by queer authors that mean a good deal to me, there's a novel called Unearthed for Gorgeous by Ocean Wong that is just. It is so much itself, and it is so able to be emblematic of a space and a time and a person and a group of people, and the many different ways in which they exist in tandem with one another, that I would recommend it to, you know, anyone looking to see what it means to just sort of be another person yeah. in a lot of ways. I'd recommend um, the writing of John Birdsall who is you know, a queer food writer. Um, I'd also recommend the writing of Tejal Rao who works for the Times. She is their LA food correspondent out there. And she's a queer author who is so able to just capture the world Right? Like as she's experiencing it, and as her neighbors are experiencing it, and the way in which those respective contexts reflect from one another, um, I'd recommend all of the work of Jacqueline Woodson, but maybe off the top of my head, another Brooklyn.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I'd recommend Edinburgh by. Alexander Chee, I'd recommend Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett. I think that the sort of challenge with any reading list is that, you know, you have your theme or you have your thing that you're ideally looking to accomplish with it, but simultaneously you don't want to hamper the multiplicity of experiences that are negotiated and navigated by whichever community that you're looking to like read about or, you know, learn learn more about. So really casting a wide net, is what I would I would try to
0: do. Yeah. yeah. I mean I think that is that's a key point that in, in any community there is such a multiplicity of experiences that you're not gonna understand even your own community by reading one book or ten books. But but yes. but it is amazing to me what literature can accomplish. Yeah. So we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Houston. Okay. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Has. Where's your favorite place to write? A shop. Where could you never write? An airplane. Uh, to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Quotation marks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was the first book you remember reading? The Real Taste of Jamaica by Ina Donaldson. What are you reading now? Pieces by Helena me. What book would you like to have written? Oh, that's such a good question.
1: Um, I don't know if I would have liked to have written it, but every day I'm grateful for
0: Rachel Cohn's Goodbye Vitamin. Mm-hmm. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A football narrative. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That the work meant something to them. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Brian Washington, whose new novel, Memorial, is available wherever books are sold. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special 2 for 1 offer, go to libro.fm and use the discount code writers if you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On November 15th, we'll have a special episode with audiobook reader Mike Lenz, who read the audiobook of my novel, Escaping Dreamland. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>